The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I thought it would be nice this week, um, because we've been spending the last almost three months looking at this list, this teaching model the Buddha used quite a bit, the Bojangas, the seven factors of awakening, the continuity of mindfulness, investigation, the application of energy, joy, rapture, tranquility, the stillness of concentration, and equanimity. It's these seven factors, when in balance in our mind, that inclines the mind toward awakening, toward insight. The mind, the balanced mind with these wholesome factors present, sees things as they actually are. So the mind, the balanced mind, it cuts through misunderstanding, misperceiving, and the actions that arise out of misperception. So the problem for us human beings is we're misperceiving the way it is. In other words, we take the experience personally. That's a misperception. Experience is just experience. It's not personal. Like, I mean, a, a silly example is we step outside today and it was really cold. It's so easy to take that cold and the bitterness of the cold personally. Or you get into traffic and you somehow it feels personal. Or even something that appears on the surface to be personal, like somebody isn't treating you very nicely. And it feels so personal. Their insulting behavior or their indifference feels so personal. But it isn't really personal. It just, it's the way that our mind is conditioned to understand experience. Our own illness. You know, I got sick a few weeks ago. Some of you got that cold that was going around. It always feels personal when we get sick, but it's not personal. So this misunderstanding is uprooted with practice. So I thought we should spend some time tonight to check in. It's surprisingly powerful to hear other people share a little bit about what's working or not working in the practice or asking clarifying questions about the Buddhist teachings or about just generally this path of awakening. So I encourage you not to be shy to bring up whatever is confusing. See, the whole process that we're engaged in, you know, as the Buddha described it, he said, first you have to have enough humility arising out of our experience of being a suffering human being. Because normally when we're suffering, we just get lost in the suffering. We complain about it or we blame somebody. So we need to have enough clarity around the suffering, to know that we're suffering, and to ask the question, is there anybody out there who knows anything about this experience of stress, or disappointment, or the pain of loss, or the existential anxiety, or whatever it is your particular expression of stress might be? Is there anybody who knows anything about it? And then to take a chance and go listen, go study, right, and hopefully bump into the teachings of the Buddha or somebody wise. And then, so we have to hear it. And then to some degree, we have to memorize it so that in our life, we can recall some teaching that's different than our habit energy. And then 
we recall that information that we've learned because we've heard a talk or we read a book or we've come to common ground and learned a few things and we recall it, we've memorized it enough that we can recall it and then we use that information to see if it actually illuminates our present moment experience and helps us to be a wiser, more kind, more skillful human being in that moment or not. And if it works, then there's some energy, right? We've been talking about this in terms of the seven factors. That's the investigation piece. It's like we're using the information we've got with the continuity of awareness, mindfulness, to understand our experience differently. So instead of looking at our experience from a habit point of view, we're now looking at it through this different lens that we've learned, that we've picked up. And does it help us understand it in a more natural, organic way, less superficial, habit-based way, that allows, kind of creates degrees of freedom that weren't there before when we were caught or lost in our habits of how we looked or how we understood things. Like the habit of thinking everybody's out to get me or I'm better than everybody else or the world is screwed up. I mean, we have all kinds of habits we just project onto the world or we see the world through that rosy glow. You know, oh, it's okay. It's going to work out. So there are all kinds of, all variations of delusion that we can use. So now's our chance. Because we're making a transition, we're moving on, for those of you who are reading along in Joseph Goldstein's book, either tonight, if nobody has any comments or questions, or next week, we're going to start with uh, Four Noble Truths, the last maybe fifth or quarter of this book that we've been reading, Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness a practical guide to awakening. Some people are reading along. Don't feel like you have to. And by the way, if given that we're close to the end of the book and you don't want to purchase it, the talks Joseph Goldstein gave that he based this book on are all on the Internet. You just go to dharmaseed.org. You look under Joseph Goldstein. You'll see a series of talks all with the title Satipatthana, which is just the discourse the Buddha gave on mindfulness. Satipatthana means the establishments or the foundations of mindfulness. It's the Pali phrase for that, those words. And there are like 47 talks. And so each chapter, there's a couple talks on each chapter. So you can just look near the end of those 47 talks will be talks on the Four Noble Truths, which we've been covering. So you could just do that if you want that additional information. But let me open it up. Please feel free to, yeah, and say your name. Yeah, actually, you know, what we find in our practice is that uh, initially we gain skill at working what's challenging and difficult because it, it's going to get our attention first. And it's actually more challenging to work with what's beautiful and wholesome and pleasant because what happens when something good is happening in our lives or something pleasant? where there's a very strong, and this is an expression of delusion, a very strong sense that I don't have to practice now because it's really good. So where we drop the interest, we drop the sort of tracking that present moment awareness of the pleasantness, of the wholesomeness of what's going on. So then the way we're going to relate to what's pleasant is going to be coming out of instinct, you know, how the mind has been conditioned which is to take it personally. This is so good that this is happening to me. 
and we'll just start imagining that I did something to deserve this or I'm good because this. In the same way, like even something simple like having a hip ache or a knee ache, it's interesting. We personalize it. We somehow think we're bad because my body hurts or that I've gotten sick or I've gotten fired or it's amazing how we personalize these things and we do just the opposite when good things happen, that we elevate ourselves. Because I have the success, because I'm feeling really fit, physically fit, or because I think of myself as being attractive or intelligent or popular, I must be, you know, and we elevate ourselves. Well, that's a terrible roller coaster to spend our life on, you know. When we get praise and success, we're here. And then when we get blame and failure, we're here. As opposed to seeing these cycles of good and bad, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasantness and unpleasantness, as just sort of natural, inevitable cycles of life. So we want to train and start where it's easy, just noticing the beautiful in life, excuse me, in the same way we notice the unpleasant in life, and practicing it as a natural, conditional arising. Oh, well, sometimes it's like this. Like for some of you right now, being together is a really nice thing. Being here at Kamagaran on a Sunday night is a nice thing. And can we notice that the niceness of it, the pleasantness of it, well, sometimes it's like this. Conditions come together. It's really wholesome. It feels really good. Sometimes it's like this. Or if it's not so nice for you tonight, well, sometimes it's like this. So we're not, we're not shrinking away from the pleasant or the unpleasant. We're actually moving into it. And it's the not taking it personally actually helps us to move into life more fully. People often think that when we're not attached, when we don't take it personally, it means we're withdrawing from life. But it's really just the opposite. It's how we come into the relationship. So you brought up being falling in love, being in love having a really wonderful relationship with another human being. And this is a great place to experiment, but it's more like graduate-level work instead of kindergarten-level work. But it's really useful to practice not taking it personally and to feel the joy, to feel the safety that can arise in moments in a really good relationship. You know, And uh, part of that way-seeking mind that's constantly looking for the perfect partner gets quiet when we think we found the perfect partner, right? And so there's a real contentedness and a real sense of safety that can arise for periods of time when we're in relationship, a healthy relationship. But we can keep noticing that sometimes it's like this. That's a really good mantra to use as things are difficult or pleasant. Sometimes it's like this. When you're a human being, sometimes it's like this. Conditions come together and the mind experiences that as really pleasant. Or conditions come together a particular way, and the mind experiences that as really unpleasant. Or neutral. Anywhere along that spectrum from really pleasant to really unpleasant. Sometimes it's like this. And it will change. And the way it is now is uncertain, meaning it's not fixed the way it is. It's an unfolding dynamic. And it will either become more pleasant or less pleasant. But it's not going to stay the same. That we know. 
because things are always in the process of changing, becoming something else. In the same way we've learned with relationships, right, that they're, they're great and then they're difficult and then they're great and then they're difficult and then sometimes we fall away from each other and sometimes new relationships are formed and sometimes they're not and everything under the sun. It's a practice. If we want to realize freedom, we have to practice being free with conditions, not just the unpleasant conditions. That's really what you're pointing to with your comment and question. We have to practice non-attachment with the pleasant. We want to be free with the pleasant, wholesome experiences in our life, which means we have to understand that they're not ours. We let them in. We say yes to the pleasant in the same way we say yes to the difficult experiences that come our way. We know they're not ours. They're just here. They're visitors. So when things come together and it's really wonderful, and we appreciate that wonderful visitor knowing that it's going to go away, whatever it is, a lot of health. We're really appreciative of it, knowing that it's visiting for a while, the health, until ill health shows up. And we... We say yes to that. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, I don't know your name. Yeah, because the way anything works is, uh, you. I mean, depends on the type of personality somebody has. A really, somebody with a real disciplined personality, they can make themselves do something for a while, but then generally there's an equal and opposite pushback. So the way that real change happens is we dip our toe in and, and we really pay attention to the dipping the toe in and we realize this feels good. You know, initially it might not, but, you know, we're safe enough just putting the toe in. And yeah, no, no, this is okay. This is good. And then we put the whole leg in, you know, and then we put the other leg in and we, little by little, till we take the plunge, right? So... We want the actual experience itself to lead us further into it. So that's why uh, in sitting practice, even if you're just a brand new beginner, it's good not to, at the end of the period of time you set aside, to just get up and rush into what's next for you. But to have some space, some ease in the transition. So you have a sense of like what happened, what was just set in motion, how did it affect the mind? Because how else are we going to assess the wholesomeness of the practice if we're not tuning in? Because here's the thing, the sit itself can be very unpleasant. And if we are going to assess whether we're going to do this again based on how it felt doing it, well, we won't do it again. Because it's hard work to keep coming back to the present moment when the mind is in the habit of getting distracted and worrying and planning and comparing and judging. So, but we want to attune to like, but what, what did that work do? What did it, how did it change the mind, even if it's very subtle? And, you know, not just what did that 30 minutes do, but what has these three months done or these 10 years or 30 years done? 30 years ago, when this happened in my life, this is how I would respond. Now, when something like that happens, the mind responds in this other way so that it, it, it builds. 
So starting with 30 minutes a day is great. And some of you I know can't do 30 minutes or haven't yet been able to convince yourself to do 30 minutes a day. Or you don't even practice. You just come every once in a while on Sunday night. We're just planting seeds. Of course, where we want to go is practicing, you know, 18 hours a day if you sleep six, right? So the formal practice is just part of the 20-hour practice or the 18-hour practice. So the formal sit, whether it's 30 minutes or an hour, the formal sit is just practicing when the conditions are optimal, meaning I'm sitting still, it's a quiet room, I'm in a pleasant place. So those are optimal conditions to sustain present moment awareness. And then the rest of the day, there are less optimal conditions to sustain present moment awareness. But the sustaining of present moment awareness, when wouldn't that be a useful uh, training for our minds? I mean, I know it's not easy, but why wouldn't we want to do the best we can do all day long to sustain a kind and clear and relaxed presence? What would be the reason not to cultivate that as best we can? And to completely forgive ourselves when we've forgotten or when we're just being rebellious. I'm not going to do that. No one can be. You know, it's like, because we feel that way. I just want to disappear. Give me a stupid TV show. I just don't want to be present right now. So that's why you don't force it, because that's that equal and opposite reaction. Like, I'm going to be good and sit. I'm going to be, whoa, half an hour. I'm going to be even better. I'm going to sit 45. And then, and then all of a sudden, it's like we can't stand the practice. And we don't want to do any of it. So it's really better to let the joy and let the benefit of the practice naturally draw us in. Like, yeah, I, I want to do more. It's not like I should do more, but I, I'm inclined to do more. It works. Thanks, Ellis. Other thoughts about practice, questions? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good question, Kermit. <clears throat> and it, you're really, it's the basic move in practice. You talked about it in terms of a difficult experience, but we basically could, you could have asked the same comment about a, a really pleasant experience like you did earlier. And, uh, you know, the way the mind normally works is when something intense, intensely difficult or intensely pleasant happens, the mind names it. I'm happy because... I'm upset because... So we tell ourselves a story. That's the storyline that Kermit was talking about. The mind immediately creates a storyline, and that storyline can either be an obstacle for practicing or can support it. So in this way, thinking isn't always bad or always skillful. It really depends on how the thinking is used or the way the thinking is used. Does the thinking... When we have a thought like, I'm really upset because I don't know what I should do with my life, or I'm really upset because this person I love died or left me. So we have a storyline like that, and if we're, if we're practicing well, then we use that storyline to aim the mind, the attention, right to the feeling. So the feeling of loss, let's say, as an example. And then... From the feeling, like the recognition, 
as uh, Kermit was saying, it's like that actual feeling right there in the moment. And even more, right to the ouch, the, the unpleasantness of that feeling, if it's an un, unpleasant experience. Because it's the heart or the mind's unwillingness to open, to receive, to know that unpleasant feeling that keeps it spinning with the storyline that can be so toxic and destructive. When we keep thinking about things, we don't realize it, of course, but it's a way of avoiding the yucky feeling. So if we can develop a sixth sense of wisdom to go right to the yucky feeling or right to the pleasant feeling, if it's something wholesome or beautiful that's happening, right to the joy, like you mentioned falling in love, sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. If we can go right to that bubbly feeling and to the pleasantness of it, or if it's surprisingly falling in love can be unpleasant, it's so intense that it can be actually unpleasant. But whatever the feeling is, if we can go right to it and in a sense make peace with it, making peace with it, by that I mean we're realizing the body and the heart and the mind that is porous, it's undefended. We're just letting that feeling move. We're not barricading or congealing around the feeling. We're not defining the feeling. We're not separating ourselves from the feeling. It's really like the heart is, a, is really raw and it's allowing itself to be touched, to be moved. It's allowing itself to feel what it feels. So if we can do that, like you suggest, then we're, we don't have to get lost in the storyline, the endless proliferation that doesn't lead anywhere except to more entanglement, more constriction, both in the body and mind. So that's the basic move in practice to go from whatever the storyline is, including something like nothing's happening, right to how that is, how that feels. Like having the thought nothing is happening feels like this. Well, can that be okay? Can we make peace with it? Because if we don't make peace with whatever that feeling is, nothing is happening, we're going to do something about it, usually neurotic. You know, we'll stir up something. Like, I'm no good because nothing's happening in my practice. Or, this is not the place to be because nothing's happening in my practice. Or, whatever you, you know, I have ADHD, so nothing's happening in my practice. Or I never get enough sleep, so nothing's happening in my practice. So we start spinning, basically, around and around and around and around. And the Buddha suggests that if we just step back and get a sense of how long we have been spinning. And he had pretty graphic stories about how long we've been spinning in the same ways spinning about sadness, spinning about exciting things, spinning about this and spinning about that. A kind of spiritual urgency would arise in our hearts and say, okay, enough, enough. There's got to be a better way. And the better way is this basic move in practice. So the continuity of awareness, of mindfulness, allows us to notice that the mind is spinning to notice that there's a feeling underneath and to notice whether that feeling is pleasant or unpleasant and to make peace with that. 
to let it in, to let the, let that pleasantness or unpleasantness be what it is. It's like this. Sometimes life is unpleasant like this. Sometimes life hurts like this. Sometimes life is beautiful or pleasant like this. Can this be okay? That it's like this now and then who knows? Right? It's just like this now. So it's not like, okay, it's always going to be like this. Which is, that's part of the storyline. Like when our heart really hurts because there's been a loss, for example, and we have the wherewithal to open to the pain as it actually is now in the body, in the heart, in the mind, then the storyline creeps in again. It's always going to be this way. This pain will never go away. But wisdom recognizes that's just the storyline. That's just a thought. And all I know, what I actually know now, is it hurts like this. Can that be okay? And with practice, wisdom will also say, and it will change. Everything changes. This deep pain, it will change too. In the same way the heart wisdom knows, this deep joy, this wonderful, exciting feeling, this will change. It won't always be this way. It's just like this now because of the certain causes, conditions, or circumstances as they're unfolding. Thanks for bringing that up. Other thoughts about your practice? Yeah, Ben. I have a follow-up question to that. Um, I, I feel like as I've meditated, I've almost become too good at moving through negative or bad things. And when something like that happens and I'll meditate and I, I kind of feel like it's you know, screwing up my samadhi, so I want to just move through it quickly and it works and it feels real and I feel okay about it. And at the same time, it, it feels like I'm not giving that, especially if it's a sad experience, I'm not giving that experience enough credit or enough attention. And so how, 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 long, how long should I hold it before letting it go? Yeah, so that thought, I'm not giving it enough attention, I mean, it is useful to have, a, to have a sense of this, what we call spiritual bypass, where we're using wisdom and awareness and, and basically the wrong idea that I shouldn't be touched by life. You know, I'm empty, I'm free, so the ups and downs of life don't touch me. We can use that as a kind of spiritual bypass. But if you feel like you're honest and you really want to see what's there, there are some tricks that we use, like by concentrating on something, we're actually suppressing the pain. So you can ask yourself, am I focusing on the breath or focusing on some meditation object in order not to feel? And then the question is, okay, that's that can be okay as long as you know what you're doing. But if you're doing that in presuming that there isn't any pain, then that's you're deluding yourself. But it's okay to get a break from the pain by concentrating, by putting your attention somewhere else. That's a skillful move. But we want to understand that that may still be there. But you don't know until you stop paying attention here and open. But you don't need to worry if it goes away because some pains like a more raw pain that, like from a, an immediate loss we've experienced, that pain tends to be right back there as soon as we're not lo no longer absorbed. You know, you go play 
soccer with somebody and you get lost, you get absorbed in the game and then you come back and you're at home and you feel, oh yeah, that pain of a breakup, let's say, or something like that. But Dharma pain, more uh, subtle pain, it's more mysterious. It's like you can live your life and not ever be aware of it, but as soon as you sit, there it is again. And then, but it's not even always there when you're quiet, when the mind is subtle. So there's some pains that you just have to trust that it will emerge and present itself when it does. And when it doesn't present itself, it's not presenting itself. And you don't have to tell it when it should be presenting itself. That when it does present itself, do your best. If the mind is balanced enough, then instead of turning your attention to maybe the meditation object like the breath, maybe for a while let that be the meditation object, that ache in the heart, that anxiety, that sadness, that uncertainty, or whatever it is. So then that's the meditation object. Okay, this is how it is now. And we practice being steady with that. We practice going from any concepts or ideas to the actual feeling, to whether it's, in this case, unpleasant. So to right to the unpleasant, unpleasantness. Like, how does the heart know it's unpleasant? Well, it feels like this. Then you look right there, whatever that feeling is. You just look right at the clench or the tightness or the weight. Oh, well, can that be okay? And you get interested in it. That's how you know you're not paying attention to make it go away. So I wouldn't worry if it disappears, Ben, because there may be one of those things that just comes and goes. That may be its nature. It's not for us to impose this idea that, no, wait a minute, either you're, either my heart hurts or it doesn't hurt. Well, who says? Sometimes it hurts, sometimes it doesn't hurt. So we don't get to say, and that's disconcerting because from a self point of view, we want it to be logical, like there's this edifice of pain, I keep working on it, drilling through it, eventually it goes away, and it's done. But it's not like that. It's more mysterious than that. What triggers, what helps the heart to see the different layers, the different frequencies of resistance and denial and rejection that the heart... Uh... And you know, these, um, these places of pain, they're like... Uh, storms that can form and be very real and then they can kind of but the tendency for the weather to be a to be stormy that tendency is still there even when it's a clear day right so it's really that's why you don't always see all the pain the potential for the mind to get tight is there even when the mind is really expansive and spacious we haven't uprooted the tendency to get tight. So it can be very tricky. Basically, we keep doing the work until there is no work to do. And then when there is no work to do, the mind is really spacious, seemingly free, loving, clear. Then we practice appreciating that and we practice experiencing or being interested in the limits, like how spacious, how beautiful, how free can the mind be? until it changes. And we practice knowing that and this is, this is just the way it is now. We don't know it's going to stay this way. It's so interesting when people first start to experience more expansive 
peaceful states of mind, and then it changes, and it can be really feeling betrayed, like because it it literally feels like this is what I've been looking for. It's like falling in love, and you experience that sort of wide open beauty, beautiful mind. Like, oh, this is what I've been looking for. This is it. I found it. My mind will always be this way. And then, you know, an hour or two later, we can be entrenched in an argument with somebody and really hating somebody. And it can be like, it feels really um, neurotic to have, but we misinterpreted the expansive state as if it were me. We took it personally. And it was just a weather system that formed that was quite beautiful. And then something else happened. And we want to be free with it all. Really expansive states. Freedom looks like not clinging to it, not grasping it, not becoming dependent on the expansive state. So in Buddhist practice, the end isn't to have expansive states of mind. The end is to be free when the mind is really beautiful and expansive and to be free when the mind is really constricted and narrow. Because sometimes it is expansive and sometimes it isn't. Thanks, Ben. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah, Tom. Yeah. Yeah, they actually describe this place in practice, and it's considered to be an imbalance of wisdom and faith. So, and everybody falls into this place where we've had some experiences in the practice basically recognizing the wholesomeness of it, recognizing that it actually works. And a lot of faith energy arises, but it isn't matched with deep wisdom yet. And so we've got all this energy, and it leaks out. And we start wanting to talk to people about the practice and tell them how to deal with their suffering. And it, and it gets stinky, just in the way, way that you described, Tom. I really appreciate you, your willingness to share it with us. Because, you know, it's, it's always embarrassing in hindsight when we look at what we said and the kind of projections or the kind of mistaken understandings perspective that we had. But it makes sense because it's like that energy builds, that faith energy builds. This is so great. <laughs> and we just don't know what to do with it because we don't, we take it personally. And this is the thing about the practice. Energy builds in the practice. That's what happens because it's not being dissipated as much with worry and lusting and hating. You know, these emotional patterns really burn up energy. So that as we do that less and less, we just feel more like a light bulb, which is more energy in life, you know, given all the other stresses that we might have we just have more energy and then we don't know what to do with that energy so we want to tell other people how to be happy or be free or whatever but we forget that that like what happened to us was a very lawful natural unfolding and that's what has to happen for everybody that doesn't mean we can't play our part with other people but mostly our part is modeling being a skillful human being, and letting interest naturally, organically arise in the other person. What are you doing? You've changed. <laughs> you know, what, are you doing anything? 
so that, and you know, even in the Buddhist tradition, it's even said that somebody should ask three times before you share. So you should have a pat answer about what you're doing. Like if you've been practicing and, you know, and someone, it, it seems like a natural time to tell somebody. But a lot of people are asking, they're not really asking what you're doing. They're just being polite. So we really want to wait to somebody's really asking, you know, I'm, I've got a lot of fear, you know, about my cancer. And I don't know what to do with it. And even then, what would be really good is just to have a sense of, of acknowledging, like being a mirror, so that the person herself sees that her rejection of the pain of uncertainty, the pain of fear, is adding to her fear. So by being a, a kind mirror, she makes her own realization. It's not that we tell her that it's impersonal or we tell her that her fear is amplifying the pain of the illness, but we help her understand or realize that on her own. That's what, that's what we can do for each other. Yeah, so we always say to people after a long retreat, you know, that first long retreat or one of their first longer retreats when they just want to go home and tell their parents, you know, no, maybe not. <laughs> maybe just sit with that feeling for a while. Other thoughts that come to mind? What have you been learning? Yeah, Danielle. Well, you really, you really named it. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a very common experience. As we're deepening our practice, we're going into new territory because this is not how we've been relating to life with awareness. We've been relating to life with delusion, with distractedness and habit energy. And now we're relating to life with awareness and we're beginning to see what we would otherwise not see. And that, that those insights are relatively fragile because compared to the bulk of our habit energy, they're relatively new and our habit energy is ancient and well-formed through so many cycles. So there we are with these new fresh, this new fresh way of being, way of understanding, and then we have a conversation with somebody and it's just like hitting a brick wall and then it makes us wonder, did I just make all that up? Because we do make stuff up. So we wonder, like, am I really experiencing the freedom or the spaciousness or the resiliency that I thought I was experiencing? Or was I just pretending? And it can really <clears throat> derail people depending on the situation. So it's more than, like, in Tom's, my response to Tom's comment was more about, like, how to be skillful with the other person. But what Danielle's bringing up is maybe even more important is protecting our own practice. So one of the reasons to be careful about how you share your practice with people who don't practice is it can create doubt about what we're doing. So that's why it is useful to have some friends who practice. So Because it's nice to talk about our practice with each other. That's why Danielle and others started that social group. I mean, not that people are always talking about their meditation experiences, but just... It creates the context and, um, for those conversations to happen when you have friends 
who are, you know, about, have the same interests that you have, that then, and it just normalizes. That's what makes a gathering like this so healthy and useful, is that we, we're normalizing what it's like to live our life where we're paying more attention in this balanced, kind, clear, relaxed way. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Danielle. Time for maybe one more comment or question. If anybody else has a thought or experience in your practice, you like to bring up questions about the Buddhist teachings or the instructions. Yeah. Yeah, that same question came up this morning in the Sunday morning program or a similar question. And it's really important because actually there is a very important place in the practice for a goal or an aspiration. I think aspiration maybe is a slightly better word to use than goal. So we need an aspiration, and certainly the Buddha talked about this aspiration for freedom, you know, the unconditional, unshakable release of the heart. That's a beautiful, and there are many beautiful poetic ways he talked about the fruit of the practice. But we have to understand that that idea, because it's a concept, like to be really skillful with my mother, or to be able to relate to my own habit energies with a lot more wisdom and skill, to be able to handle the imperfections of life, my own imperfections and the imperfections of those people I'm around with more spaciousness. Those are really beautiful goals or aspirations. But the aspiration, the idea of what's possible is not how to get there. And that's the key. So having the idea that I can live in this messy, confusing world with an aging body and an imperfect personality and be really happy and skillful and productive, that aspiration is a beautiful aspiration for me. And it's energizing. But that's all it can do. It, it can develop some energy and kind of have a sense of where I'm heading, where I'd like to head. But how then, what I do with that energy, I have to let go of the aspiration and I have to reflect. Now, what has my life taught me that actually leads in that direction? Then do that. Because what we tend to do when we have a beautiful aspiration is we tend to think about it. Like even something really mundane like wanting a nice car proliferating or obsessing about having a nice car, all-wheel drive, something that I can Bluetooth my podcast so I don't have to listen to the stupid radio, you know, and this and that. Thinking about it, thinking about it, that has nothing to do with getting that car. It has everything to do with getting tight, you know, having a mind, body that's tight. So it's the same thing with a more beautiful aspiration, like to be a, a wise and kind human being, a skillful human being. Thinking about it, imagining it, it's only useful to the extent that it energizes our life. And then we have to do something that actually leads there. And we have to distill from our own life, well, what do we know that moves in that direction? Well, paying attention seems to help. Well, let me train in paying attention right now. So to do that, I have to let go of thinking about being enlightened, and I actually have to cultivate a simple, clear, kind presence. 
And that's the real art. We need the goal or the aspiration, but then we take the energy that we get from having a goal and we apply ourselves to the moment, to being more skillful in this moment, to setting in motion what leads there. And that one of the descriptions I've used that the Buddha says, what leads there is cultivating these seven factors of awakening because when the mind is balanced with energizing factors like investigation and joy, mindfulness, and calming factors like tranquility and concentration and equanimity, then insight develops and insight, insight in the direction of freedom and kindness. Thanks for that good question. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. And appreciating everybody's wise comments and questions. and inspired in our busy lives to cultivate this wise, clear, kind presence, trusting that good things will follow. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.